Hey, Wheaton Bible Church, Pastor Phil here. We have just a few announcements to share with you as we get started this morning. If you're new to Wheaton Bible Church, we'd love to connect with you. Feel free to scan the QR code on the seat back in front of you. And from there, you can learn more about who we are, what we believe, and groups that are available to join. If you'd like to stay up to date on all that's going on here at Wheaton Bible Church, sign up for our weekly newsletter. You can sign up on our homepage. Every December, our ministry, Puente del Pueblo, invites under-resourced families in our community to the Christmas store, providing parents the opportunity to purchase affordable gifts for their children. The biggest and easiest way that you can serve is by donating gifts. In the atrium and around the church, you'll find large donation boxes where you can place your new unwrapped gifts with the receipt attached. For more information and to purchase gifts online, visit wheatonbible.org slash Christmas store. On November 15th, we will be hosting our annual blood drive. This is a great way to serve our community and there are thousands of people in need of blood. Donors must be at least 17 years old. Check out wheatonbible.org slash outreach and look for the donate blood link. While the holiday season is an exciting time for many of us, we recognize as a church that for some it can bring back uncertainty and sorrow. If you're hurting this holiday season from a past divorce or loss, we'd like to invite you to Surviving the Holidays on November 17th. This will feature two different sessions, one for those separated or divorced, and the second for those grieving the loss of a loved one. To register, visit wheatonbible.org slash surviving the holidays. That's it for this week. Have a great morning and let's worship together. Good morning and welcome to church this morning. When King David in First Chronicles finally brought the Ark of God back to Jerusalem, he appointed the worshipers to sing these specific words that we now know as Psalm 96. And they, they, he, said to, he told them to say, Give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him, sing praise to him, tell of all his wonderful acts. And so this morning, we join together as a body to sing to him and tell of all his wonderful acts, just as they did back when they brought the ark back into Jerusalem to celebrate. Let's stand and sing of his wonderful grace.
for his grace, and now we confess to him our sins that we rely on his grace for. Let's pray together from the screen, from the Lutheran Book of Confession. This is a confession prayer. Most merciful God, we confess that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us, forgive us, renew us, and lead us, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. We continue to sing about the wondrous mystery of his grace that Jesus gave us on the cross.
Well, today we have some special guests with us that I wanted to introduce you to. Um, we have our, one of our missionary families, Ben, Mandy, Jacob, and Jenny Beth Pearson with us in worship today. Our family has a personal connection to the Pearsons because a few years ago, my daughter, Elizabeth, asked to have a pen pal with a missionary, and we got, we got all set up with, uh, we happened to be set up with these people. So Jenny, Beth, and Elizabeth have been writing for a few years, and then come August, um, they're on furlough, and Elizabeth and Jenny Beth find themselves face-to-face -face at a school event, and they say, oh, there you are. The person that I've been writing for years is now face-to-face -face right in front of me. So that was a very special moment for our families to see just the way that our missionaries are so close to us, even though we think, oh, they're the missionaries, they're over there. No, they are so close, and they've never been so close as, as we've known them now. So they're serving in Papua New Guinea, and we would love to hear from them, just share a little bit about God's faithfulness to them as they serve there. Thank you, Katie. Yes, we serve with Wycliffe Bible Translators in Papua New Guinea, a country with over 850 languages. Uh, Mandy and I are the team leaders for a translation project that serves 16 of those languages. And the Lord has really been faithful to us over the last 20 years. We train local translators, literacy trainers, and church leaders um, using uh, discipleship tools and the newly translated Bible portions. Our vision is to see Papua New Guineans trained to fully participate in the complicated and multifaceted task of Bible translation so that they may continue to uh, translate the whole Bible and also to help their neighboring language groups who have none of the Bible yet. So far, we have helped them to translate and publish 60% of the New Testament and some Old Testament portions. And we are here this year until the end of the school year um, this month, I'm supporting our team remotely as they draft Colossians and as they uh, revise Galatians and uh, Ephesians, getting that ready for consultant checking next year, and also as they're getting uh, ready to publish First and Second Peter. So we really want to thank you so much, Wheaton Bible Church, for faithfully supporting and praying for our family and our ministry. Our family has gone through some really really difficult times, as I'm sure all of us have for some reason. Um, but our confident hope is in the Lord Jesus. And this passage from Psalm 73, verses 25 through 28, expresses that hope. Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. The Lord is a refuge here in America and there in Papua New Guinea. So let's thank God for all that he's doing in and through them. Now the choir is going to sing an arrangement of Great is Thy Faithfulness. And during that time, I would encourage you to be thinking, how has God been faithful to me lately? 
Maybe it's a good circumstance or something physical in nature, or maybe it's more spiritual. He's forgiven me. He loves me. As the choir sings, we're gonna, after they sing, we're going to join together in the hymn together, and then we're going to give the open floor for the congregation to all encourage each other about how God has been faithful to each of us. So you can be thinking while we're singing, how has God been faithful to me that might encourage my brothers and sisters around the room. So enjoy. Great 
So we open the floor. How has God been faithful to us in this collective sense? Yeah, Jenny. Since her stroke, she hasn't been able to drive. God has given her loving friends that have transported her. And to take other things, too. Praise God. We praise God with you. Excellent. Wonderful. How else? He didn't leave me as he found me, Alice. Amen. All of us. Praise the Lord. What else? Compan He's our great companion, for sure. He's our hope. For sons that help us with things that we need help with. Amen. Wonderful. Promise for the future. Purpose for here and now. Excellent. Grandbabies in general. <laughs> Something here. He always loves. He's our great healer. So many of us have seen that. He's our comforter in unison back there. One more, maybe. Kids that love learning about Jesus and want to go to Sunday school, we praise God with you for all those kids. Amen. Well, as we continue, we want to ask God to uh, continue to provide for us. So let's close this section with our, um, the Lord's Prayer together. Pray with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Please be seated.
know what's uh, one thing that I'm super grateful for that we ought to celebrate this morning? That we get to be here as a family in Jesus Christ. Amen? The older I get, the more I, I get to appreciate how important the local church is. And how magnificent it is to see that the Lord made us a family. You know why I find that magnificent? Because if it wasn't for Jesus, none of us would ever be in the same place loving each other and loving the Lord Jesus. It's only because he has been good. And because in his kingdom, he loves to put, put people together that no way, in no other way, should be together. Amen? I'm going to call the ushers to the front. And as we continue, um, in an attitude of worship and adoration, uh, thanking the Lord for everything that he's doing, uh, has been doing, and will do in our lives. Um, part of what we do is to demonstrate to the Lord that we trust him and we love him and we rest in him is, is by uh, worship him as well, not just with words, but with our giving. As a church, we believe that giving is an act of adoration and an act of obedience. And that we give not because we need anything from him, but because we have everything from him in Jesus Christ. Amen? So if you are new to the church, please do not feel obligated to participate in this. This is for a church family. Um, and if you haven't joined us in this, there are three different ways in, you, in which you can support the church financially. You could always give online. You could go to wittenbible.org slash give. You could always uh, put your offering in the plates as we pass them out. Or you could always send your offering to the offices of the church for those of you that are worshiping with us online. You guys may pass the plates. As we continue to pass the plates, um, I want to introduce to you someone that is not new to us, but is new to the staff of West Chicago campus. Um, if you guys remember, a few months ago, um, actually for five years, we had uh, a campus in the stream where it was called Tri-Village. And the Lord uh, gave us an understanding of the direction in which we needed to go. And one of the persons that was working there was the lead pastor of that congregation, which was Eric Solomon. So I'm going to call Eric to come to the front. And today I'm super uh, happy and excited to announce that uh, Eric now is part of the West Chicago Campus, Wheaton Bible Church, Iglesia del Pueblo staff. Uh, and he's going to be overseeing of our adult ministries, our adult discipleship team. Um, if you know anything about Eric, he is passionate about the word, passionate about the gospel, passionate about the church, and passionate in all areas of life. Right? So he is American. Cuban and Dominican. That's what makes this so passionate individual, right? Uh, so how about we uh, give him a round of applause. So welcome to our staff. Uh, Eric, we are super excited that you get to join us here. Um, I was already excited because you were part of the family. But now I get to see you all the time and hear you all the time. Be ministered by you many times and you get to minister this beautiful church as well. 
So we want to pray for you. Uh, so I'm going to ask you to please stretch out your hands and let's pray for Eric. Beautiful Savior, we are so grateful that you continue to raise uh, leaders like Eric. Ministers of the gospel, pastors that love you and love your church well. Lord, and we know that in every transition and every role, there's beautiful things and also difficult things. I pray, Lord, that Eric may enjoy everything beautiful that you're doing. But you give him the strength and the spiritual wisdom and discernment to deal with the difficulties that come with ministry. Please protect him, protect his family, protect his kids, Lord. Protect everything that has to do with him, Lord. Because at the end of the day, we want uh, Eric to continue to give you glory and do things for the joy of your people. I pray, Lord, for a special unction of the Spirit. That not only you anoint him, but you give him unction. That whenever he speaks and teaches and leads and disciples and loves and serves, he does it by the power of the Spirit. Lord, and we are grateful that we get to pray as a church together. I'm grateful, Lord, that we get to bring our needs before you, Lord. I pray that you continue to work in us and through us, especially for my brothers and sisters that are going through difficult situations and times. On the other hand, I'm super grateful that today or this week we get to celebrate uh, Veterans Day. People that have been committed to this country, to defend this country and serve this country. I pray, Lord, that you may be with them. And I pray, Lord, that you continue to use them for the glory of your name. And now, Lord, we want to get ready for the preaching of your word. So please, by the power of your spirit, illuminate our minds, transform our hearts, influence our wills. So we live according to what you want from us. And we pray for all this in the name of Jesus and the churches. I'm going to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word. Buenos dias, familia. That means good morning, sorry. We are, our preaching passage this morning comes from Matthew 14, verses 1 through 12. If you've got your Matthew journals with you, you can turn with us, be on page 74. Familia, I want to invite you to receive this word of God for us this morning. God's word tells us. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That, that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. You see, Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. But then what had happened was, on Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right. Good morning once again. 
for those of you who don't know me, my name is Hannibal, uh, one of the pastors here, and I wanted to welcome you all again. Um, especially if you're visiting for the first time, if uh, we would love, I just want you to know that we are here to love you and serve you in any way we can, and we would love to exchange information and exchange uh, some of the stuff with you, so share with you some of the stuff that we do as a church, so you can always scan that QR code in front of you, um, and, and I guarantee you that someone is going to reach out to you. Today we continue with our journey through the Gospel of Matthew, and we are starting part six in our series. Um, and I believe in part 6, we're going to grab uh, chapters 14, 15, and part of chapter 16. So that's part of the reason why we have a, a new icon coming up, right? And we have stickers, so you could always, if you have your journal, you could grab one of those as you, as you uh, exit the building or exit the church and then uh, put it in your journal. If you have been with us for the last three weeks, um, you know that we have been actually five weeks if you include Missions Fest. But, you know, that's besides the point. Uh, is in Matthew 13, we have been looking into six parables Jesus um, shares that talk about the kingdom of God. And by the time of, the, of Matthew 13 and the context of that narrative, Jesus is gaining a lot of popularity because of the things that he says about the kingdom, because of the things he's doing, because of the things he says. Uh, he's gaining, and the text says, fame. Such fame that even people <clears throat> in the higher positions of society are, are getting to hear of him. Among them, we find Herod the Tetrarch. Um, and it's interesting, and this person is an interesting character in this story. Not just because of who he was, but how he lived and what his family was like. And he's also famous in the text because of his interaction that he has with John the Baptist. A similar interaction that, um, that, that, that his father had with Jesus. And in this text, which is interesting, it's a very uh, weird text, if you will. Because it seems like if the story, the, the Gospel of Matthew is taking a break in between. And we find in this text Herod and his family, John... And then we also find Jesus. And with each one of these, we're going to learn three things. We're going to learn what to fear, what not to fear, and whom to fear. For the what to fear, we're going to talk about Herod and his family. For what not to fear, we're going to talk about John, John the Baptist. And for whom to fear, you know who we're going to talk about. So let's go with point number one, what to fear. Verse 1 starts by introducing Herod, and it describes him as Herod the Tetrarch. Now, I'm going to do a lot of explanation for this point at the beginning, so I'm gonna need, I really need you to pay attention so you don't get lost. All right? Don't get lost in translation or accent. Don't get lost. This man is called Herod, not because that was his name per se, not because his parents thought that it would be a cute name to put his child, their child. He was Herod because that was his title. He was Herod because he was the son of Herod, the same Herod that we find in Matthew chapter 2. Chapter two. The Herod that we find in Matthew chapter 2 is Herod the Great, the father of this Herod. And that Herod has sons, a bunch of them, but at least we know from history that he's got four sons. And that he divided his kingdom into four sections. Each section is called a tetrarch. 
what he does is he divides his kingdom into four sections, and then we have this guy that, by, his name, by the way, his name is Antipas. And that's the name that I'm going to use uh, so you know who I'm talking about. Antipas um, is the supervisor or the owner or the king of a single section. Are you guys with me so far? So Herod the Great in Matthew chapter 2 is not the same Herod that we have here. This is Antipas. Now, before moving on, I have to ask a question for us to set the context of the text well. Uh, personal question. Do you guys mind personal questions? Not whatsoever, right? Um, so please don't raise your hand. And don't make any noise because it's going to get super awkward. How many of you guys know a dysfunctional family? Just think about it. All right. How many of you guys consider your family, don't raise your hand. How many of you guys consider your family to be a little bit of a dysfunctional family? I told you not to raise your hand. <laughs> Listen up. The reason why I want to start with that is because I thought that my family was a little bit dysfunctional. Mainly because of my wife and kids. <laughs> not true just in case they're watching online. But what I want to show you here before we dig into this text is that if you think that you know a dysfunctional family, and if you think that to a certain degree your family is dysfunctional, I guarantee you that by the time I finish explaining this text, you will feel so good about your family. You know, every family has one of those weird cousins and maybe like a weird uncle. Man, that your family has nothing on this family. So I'm going to frame it like this. If I was a psychologist and I'm getting to counsel Antipas, I will blame that guy, everything that he does has gone through, I will blame it on his parents. Because he's got really messed up parents. So let's just start again. His father is Herod the Great. If you were with us when we looked into Matthew chapter 2, you might remember that Herod the Great was the guy that wanted to kill Jesus. And to kill Jesus as a baby, he sent to kill a ton of babies all under the age of two. That's pretty messed up. Now, we know from the text and from history that this man is insecure He's an egomaniac. He's self-centered. He's a narcissistic, drunk-with-power monster. That he would do anything in his power to get rid of anyone he perceived was a threat to his power. That's the guy we're going to talk about. This is the father of Antipas. Actually, we know from history that this guy, Herod the Great, Kill family members because he was suspicious that the family wanted to take his power. That's a really messed up family. Actually, we know from history that the saying going around when he was a king, it was that it was safer to be the Herod's pig than to be the Herod's son. That's a pretty messed up family. I would say that Antipas... The Herod that we find here in Matthew chapter 14 has all the reasons in the world to have daddy issues. Don't you think? But it gets better because there's more. 
We know from history, for example, that Antipas has, as I said before, at least three other brothers. And her, his dad had at least ten wives. One of his brothers is Philip, the guy that we find in verse 3. That Philip is a half-brother. He's got another brother that his name, and, and listen, these are beautiful names. If you're looking for a, for a name for your, your children or grandchildren, these are beautiful names. Aristobulus. So you have Antipas, Philip, and Aristobulus. Now, Aristobulus had a daughter. And I, this is, the, we have, we're going to notice that there's a different pronunciation in the way Eric pronounced this name and I pronounced the name because none of us know how to pronounce those names. The name of this lady was Herodias or Herodias. I'm going to go for Herodias. So here you have Antipas' half-brother. Don't get lost, okay? I had to do a drawing on this thing to understand the whole thing. And this brother has a daughter, and this is the lady that we find in verse 3. Now check this out. If you read the story, you know that Philip fell in love with Herodias. The uncle fell in love with the niece. That's pretty messed up. Which is the daughter of his half-brother. That makes it even more messed up. Now check this out. If you think that's bad enough, the father of Herodias was executed by Herod the Great, his father. I mean, Hollywood, has, Hollywood has nothing on this family. So you got Philip falling in love with his niece. And his niece had daddy issues because her father has been killed. Now, how did that happen? How is it that this family thing happened? And listen, the text doesn't say anything. I didn't find anything in history that explained it. So this is my imagination. So just bear with me for a second. One day, the Herodians have a family picnic. <laughs> Labor Day. <laughs> Labor Day weekend. They were celebrating that they didn't have to work because all of their slaves had to work. And in the middle of this celebration, as the sun is coming down and there's music in the background, Antipas turns around and sees his niece, his brother's daughter, holding hands with her husband. And in some weird, twisted, magical moment, they look at each other and they fall in love. And somehow they thought they fell out of love automatically and fell in love automatically. And they decided to start, so they get divorced on both, on both ends, and they start a life together. That's a drama, people. That's a soap opera for us. So public was this thing, so dysfunctional was this thing, that everyone in town knows about this relationship. Everyone in town, including John the Baptist. Which, man, you have to put yourself in the context of this story because you guys know where John the Baptist lived? In the desert. How public was this thing? What a gossip was going around that even John the Baptist, minding his own business, baptizing people in the desert, heard about it. Now, I don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us how he heard about that, 
But let me allow me to use my imagination once again. You know, he's minding his own business. He's preaching about the kingdom of God. He's baptizing people. And one of the persons that is coming to get baptized, right before he gets baptized, and he says, did you hear about Herod? You know why that happened there? Because even the people that get baptized likes to gossip. Now, John the Baptist does the most loving thing he could do. He confronts them. Because that is the most loving thing to do. So look at what it says in verse 3. Now, Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because the Herodias. Because of Herodias, his brother's Philip's wife. Verse 4. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Don't you feel better about your family? This is a messed up situation. Now, the reason why John is, is confronting these, these men is because he knows. He knows that he's got a Jewish background, therefore he knows. He knows what Leviticus 18 says and, and uh, Leviticus 20 says, that it's, it's not proper to have sexual relationship with a family member. So he is not confronting him with something that he doesn't know. He is reminding him of something that he should know. And Herod is, and Antipas is so upset with this that in verse 5 says that Herod wanted to kill John for he was afraid of the people because they considered John to be a prophet. Now I'm going to ask you to pause there for a second and remember the word afraid because I'm going to come back to it later on. But also I want you to pause there for a second uh, because I want you to see that even though, um, even though it seems like if, if Antipas did not know what he was doing, he knew that what he was doing was wrong. He knew that having his niece as a wife was wrong. He knew that having divorced his wife to get his niece was wrong. He knew that all this situation was wrong. And yet what I find amazing in this text is that John does not use his family, his background, his personal experience, and his daddy issues as an excuse for his immorality. See, he is not going to use any of his upbringing, his father's issues, and his personal struggle as an excuse for his immorality. And that's why he confronts him. Now, I think that we would all agree that this family is really messed up. How about if I tell you that there's more? Because if you keep reading the text and you find verses 6 and 7, then Herodias comes into the picture and something else happens. Verse 6, and Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced um, for the guest and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Now, it was the custom in those days for the Herod to have a big party, a big celebration in his birthday. And he would invite all the important people in society to participate in this. Now, one of the customs, an immoral custom, what was to bring young slave dancers to dance sexually in front of everybody. Now, history tells us that those girls were usually somewhere between 12 and 14 years of age. But did you notice who danced that day? I mean, it was bad enough that they had female um, slaves dancing in front of everybody. 
But notice that the person that was dancing there was Herodias' daughter. Meaning that Philip was like a second degree uncle, right? And that, I'm sorry, that, uh, not Philip, um, what was the name of that guy? What is it? There you go. So he is Herod. I'm going to come back to the name. So Herod finds he's pleased as he's looking at this family member, stepdaughter, dance in, dance in front of everybody. Can you see how this family is more and more and more dysfunctional? Can you see what's happening here? How is it that a man is okay for a 12-year-old girl, period, to be dancing in front of men like that. And what makes it even worse is that it's his, his daughter-in-law. But look at what happens in verse 9. Oh, I'm sorry, in verse 8. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here and a platter the head of John the Baptist. So not only Herod is messed up, but Herodias is messed up. She has no issue sacrificing her daughter to please her husband and to please his lustful friends. And you thought that your family was dysfunctional. Who does that? That's how messed up and profound their sin is. You know the name of the girl is Salome. The stepdad sacrificed the daughter, the mom sacrificed the daughter, and the daughter is just a victim of everybody else. An object of pleasure. Now, what I find super weird in this text, though, is verse 9. Because look at the, the reaction of Herod when he knows that he's got to kill John. The king was distressed, but because of his oats and his dinner guest, he ordered that her request be granted. If you guys remember, the mom told the girl, I want John's head, and she did it. And notice that now he has two problems. He made a promise, and he cares way too much about his friends. And he's in complete distress. Now, one of the commentators I was checking, one of the scholars I was checking, his name is Douglas um, Shannoneal. In his commentary of this text, he says that this family, is the, this family is the perfect description of Proverbs chapter 6. Look at what Proverbs chapter 6 says. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, pride, a lying tongue, falsehood, hands that shed innocent blood, murder, a heart that devises wicked schemes, evil plans, feet that are quick to rush into evil, lust and adultery, and false witness who pours out lies and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Family issues. Don't you think that this family, that he's right? This is a description of a family of everything the Lord hates and finds detestable. So why is Herod in distress? Don't you find that weird? You know what the word distress means there? To be grieved. To feel sad. So he knows that everything that he's doing is wrong. He knows what he has said. 
He knows his background. He knows all of this, and yet he knows that he's got to kill uh, John the Baptist, and he feels sad. Actually, verse 5, if you read it with me, it says that he wanted to kill John. Why is it that he feels this way? Well, this is when one of the other Gospels is going to help us. Because in the Gospel of Matthew, this story is short. But in the Gospel of Mark, you got the extended version of that narrative. And I want to read it for you and just pay attention to the words. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge. You know, it's this gradual hostility. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. Look at who wanted to kill him first. But she was not able to. Why? Because Herod feared John and protected him, which is super weird. Because he, to a certain degree, the word uh, fear there means to be, to admire, to respect. So here you have Herod that is being called out by John, and yet he still admires him and respects him. Knowing him, John, to be a righteous and a holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled. Yet he liked to listen to him. So look at what's happening. Apparently, when he calls him out, he puts him in prison. But every now and then, he lets him out. And John continues to preach and do his thing. And even though he's bothered by John, he knows that he's a righteous man, that he's holy man. And even though he's puzzled by the things that John says, he still likes to listen to him. You know what the word puzzle there means? The word puzzle describes why is it that John was in, why is it that Herod was in distress? Why is it that Antipas was in distress? The word puzzle literally means this. To want something but not want it. To be in between places, to feel lost, to feel like if you travel back and forth. Do you know why Herod was in distress? Do you know why Antipas was in distress? Because on one end, he knew that he had no justification for what, for what he was doing wrong. But on the other end, he's being driven by his desires and pleasures. See, on one end, he truly respects John and believes, that, that believes what John says. He believes that as a righteous man and a holy man. But on the other end, he wants to follow his own heart. See, to a certain degree, Herod, Antipas, is driven by fear. He is afraid of people. Remember I told you that to keep that in mind? To a certain degree, he is, he's got a fear of his wife because he's doing everything she says. And to a certain degree, the text says that he feared John. He's got admiration and respect for John. But there's one thing he does not fear that he should fear. He does not fear his sin. He does not fear what sin is, what sin represents, and what sin does. That's the one thing that we ought to fear. Sin. See, see Herod was supposed to stop to consider that the sin of his fathers truly affected him. And that his personal sins always affect other people because sin never lives in isolation and always affects everyone you love. Do you fear your sin that way? 
See, Herod should, should have stopped to consider that sin is egocentric. That as much as you want to care for other people, you cannot care for other people because you only care about you. That's what sin does. See, Herod was supposed to stop to consider that sin is always works gradually. It starts little but takes over everything over time. It leads you to do awful things. See, Herod was supposed to stop to consider that sin is a distortion. And it doesn't respect anyone. It does not respect family members. It does not respect society. It does not respect a righteous and holy man. See, Herod was supposed to stop to consider that sin, if not killed, leads you to violate, violate your conscience. Sin is that dangerous. It leads you to ignore what you know God wants from you. If there's one thing we can, we can learn from Herod, from Herod, if there's one thing that he can, he can teach us, is that either we fear sin or our sin has the potential to destroy everything we are, everything we have, and everyone we love. Therefore, the answer when, Jesus, when John is calling, the, uh, calling them out is to repent. To repent as many times as necessary. To repent for big sins and little ones. To repent because sin is like fire. It starts little, but it takes over everything. Like John Owen used to say. Either you'll be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Don't you think that we need that message today? I need that message today. Because deep down inside, we are little Herods. Either we kill sin or sin is going to kill us. And the word killing is what is going to take me to my second point. What not to fear. See, I am convinced that one of the reasons why we pursue our pleasures and we allow wrong things to take control of our minds and hearts and affections and influence our will is because even though we believe in the resurrection, we don't believe as much. That even though theologically and cognitively, cognitively appear we believe in the resurrection, functionally it is possible to live like if you didn't believe in the resurrection. And the problem is that when we don't believe in the resurrection, then the way to live is let's eat and drink because tomorrow we'll die. And if we don't believe in the resurrection, then we adopt what young people would say, well, YOLO, you only live once. And if we don't believe in the resurrection, then what we have to do is to follow our hearts, our passions, our desires, and our pleasures. Why? Because we're going to die. And I want to make the argument that in this text, both Herod believes in the resurrection and John believes in the resurrection, but they live completely different because one truly believes and the other one thinks that believes. How do I know that Herod believes in the resurrection or Antipas believes in the resurrection? Look at what it says in verse 2. And he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist when he's talking, when he's hearing about Jesus. And he says, he has risen from the dead. He hears everything that is happening about Jesus. And he assumes that this is John resurrected. He believes in the resurrection. 
And we also know that John believes in the resurrection because when he died, look at what his disciples did in verse 12. The disciples came and took his body and buried it. For that culture in that time, burying a body was a symbolism that said that you believe that one day your body will resurrect again. So the questions we need to ask is this. What is the difference then between Antipas and John? And I want to make the argument that Antipas, even though he believed in the resurrection, he was afraid of dying. That's why he lived the way he lived. And John, that believed in the resurrection, was not afraid of dying. That's what is, we're not to fear, death. How do I know that? All right, let's do a little case study with, with Herod, really quick. If we really don't believe in the resurrection... Or let's say if we believe the way Herod believed, we think that the best life to live is the one we have here on this side of glory. But we believe in the resurrection, then we understand that the best life we're going to get is the one that comes after glory when Jesus comes back and makes everything new. But you know where you are by the way you live. So for example, Herod lived a life in which he believed that the ultimate happiness, that the ultimate aesthetic experience, that the ultimate love, power, fulfillment, and accomplishment could be gained and found here on this side of glory. What is the problem with that? That we know that that is not true. It doesn't matter what we accomplish and gain and buy. It's just never enough. Everything at the end of the day is taken away from us. Have you ever thought about that? Your family is taken away from you. Your looks are taken away from you. Your accomplishments are taken away from you. Your experience and your degree and your power and your money, everything eventually is taken away from you. So what are you going to do? So this is where the secular mentality doesn't help us because they say, well, pursue, pursue, pursue it in a different place. Pursue it in a different relationship. Pursue it in a different uh, organization. Pursue it in a different title, in a different job. And that's exhausting. You know why? Because you pursue it and then it's not enough again. That would be the difference between Herod and John. Because John lived as someone that truly believed in the resurrection. And that the best life is not found here, but what is come on the other side of glory when Jesus returns. How do I know that? You remember how he started his ministry? Calling people to repent. Can you imagine when I first got elected as a senior pastor that my first, first five minutes is repent, people. How is it that a person could live like that? Because he knows that that message might lose friends. But he's not afraid of what he could lose here because what is coming is much better than what he has here. You guys remember uh, what he said about Jesus? He says, he must increase and I must decrease. No self-orientation, no self-seeking, no celebrity mentality. He doesn't want to be respected or admired. He wants Jesus to increase and for him to fade away. Have you ever heard? Any coach tell you the best thing that you could do is to fade away? You know why he's not afraid of fading away? Because whatever is coming on that side of glory is much better than what he has here. 
I find it interesting that he's in prison, that he knows that he's going to die, and that whenever he gets a little break to get out and take a breather, he continues to preach the message that the Lord gave him. You know why he could continue to preach the same message even though he knows that he might die? Because he was not afraid of dying. Dying was graduation, people. Painful, but graduation. The Herodians, by the way they lived, show us that if we're going to fear something, we got to fear sin. John, on the other hand, show us, by the way he lived, that if there's one thing that we should not fear, is to fear death. Question. How then shall we live? What is it that we need to see and experience in order for us to learn how to fear sin and not fear death? Point number three, whom to fear. I have to remind you of something that John says at the beginning of his ministry when he saw Jesus. Right before Jesus comes to get baptized, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Keep that in mind. He sees Jesus and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm sure you know this, but the word fear in the Bible has a double meaning. Almost all the time when you see it, especially when it talks about fear God, it has a double meaning. It literally means to be afraid of him. I mean, he is God. God is a consuming fire. He's not your little friend. He's not your wimpy God. He's God. So I think that it's healthy for us to be afraid of God in that sense. But the word fear also means the way he, we, I explained it in the relationship between Herod and John. It also means to admire and to respect. But when the Bible talks about fearing God, it talks about being complete amazement because you have seen something wonderful. I want to invite you to consider that what changes our hearts and it keeps a good balance between fearing God and fearing God in terms of being amazed by him is when we see Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, John got to live the way he lived because he, see, he got to see Jesus just like that. As the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You know what's interesting though? Is that John died and I don't think that he understood before he died what that meant. But you and I do. Because the only way that we're going to uh, begin to fear our sin more and more. The only way we get to hate our sin more and more, the only thing that takes us to repent time and time again is when we know and believe in Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes the sin of the world. See, I don't know if you've ever seen a lamb up close and personal, but there's something about those There's a reason why God chose that animal. That animal is gentle and humble, just like our Savior. But he's gentle and humble, and in Old Testament times, the animal for the sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. So everything starts to change when we see Jesus as a gentle, humble Savior that was sacrificed for the forgiveness of our sins. 
Why would I say that that's how we start? Because if you're honest, and you have to be honest, we are the description of Proverbs chapter 6. You and I are closer to the Herodians more than what we think. If you don't think that's your case, let me read Proverbs 6 again for you. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, pride. A lying tongue, falsehood. Hands that shed innocent blood, murder. Maybe not everyone, but at least one. A heart that devises wicked schemes, evil plans. Feet that are quick to rush into evil. And a false witness who pours out lies and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. I don't know about you, but I see myself in that text. And I see the Lamb of God dying for those sins. Taking away all my shame and guilt. Making me clean. You know what's even more amazing about this? Is that there's another reason why God chooses a lamb. See, I don't know if you've ever seen um, the sacrifice of a lamb, but I have. And there's something unique about this animal because this animal does not make any noise. And he does not move. He allows himself to be executed, killed, and he doesn't make a sound. Actually, the one I saw was looking at me and does not move and does not make a sound. And Jesus uses this lamb, and God uses this lamb to explain not just what Jesus did, but how he did it. He dies at the cross. Even though he knew that I had been like Herod. And he allows himself to be killed and executed. Knowing that he will experience a terrible thing. Knowing that he was dying in a place of a dysfunctional, dysfunctional people. Knowing that we have been seeking for pleasure and beauty and love in other places outside of him. Knowing that he knew, knowing that he was going to get killed for something he did not do. Knowing that the very people he's dying for have a, a background just as rough as the one we just read. And he never says anything except one thing. Why have you forsaken me? Or two, three things. Why have you forsaken me? Please forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And it is finished. You know how your heart changes? You know how your heart, you start to hate your sin? Not just what your sin does, but your, hint, your sin itself. You know when you lose all uh, fear of dying? When you know that you have been cleansed in Jesus Christ and that he secured the better, the better future. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ, including death. That's what changes your heart. Do you have that? 
Have you surrendered your life to Jesus like that? Or are you living in light of that? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to confess that we are closer to the Herodians than what we think we are. Not because we've done the same awful things they do, they did, but because our hearts are very similar to theirs. Therefore, Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that your spirit allow us and help us hate sin, not just what sin does. That you empower us by the power of the gospel, by the motivation of the gospel to kill our sin so our sin does not kill us. And I pray by the same spirit that you give us a picture so big, so amazing about the other side of glory that we don't settle for substitution and this side of glory. Could you please turn us into people that live in light of what the Lamb of God, the one that took away our sins, did for us. Could you please make that happen. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And we all say. We close with a song that reminds us who God is for real on the other side of glory that we can't see yet, but that we celebrate each morning, hopefully in our own time. So let's stand together and worship the King as who he is.
is nothing but a footnote compared to what is yet to come. Nothing but a footnote. So let's live like if we believe in the resurrection. And let's live like if our sin is really dangerous. Amen? Amen. Let's receive the blessing that Jesus Christ guarantees for us. Psalm 67, verses 1 and 2. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine, uh, face shine on us. So that his ways may be known on earth and his salvation among all nations. And the church says, thanks for coming, church. We love you. Have a blessed day. You are sent. Thank you.